Hello. Although we all have our own ways of stringing random thoughts into articulate sentences, I'm sure most of my fellow scribes would agree that it is often helpful to languidly contemplate as the grey matter juggles the words into place, ready to be transmitted to the fingertips and thence to the paper or computer screen. Inspiration is key in avoiding the dreaded blank page syndrome and looking out of my window across the River Wye. I'm minded that if one cannot find inspiration here, then it really is time to call it a day. Directly in my line of sight, in what seems just a stone's throw but is in reality about a mile as the crow flies, lie the ruins of Clifford Castle. Situated on a promontory overlooking a river crossing, the term Cliff Ford becomes coherent. Now in private hands, it opens to the public on several days per year. This early Motton Bailey edifice was built in 1070 by William Fitz Osborne, first Earl of Hereford, and was intended to provide protection for a planned Norman settlement. One of its most notable incumbents in later years was Rosamond Clifford, known for her beauty as Fair Rosamond and famous as the mistress of Henry II. A property nearby is still known as Rosamond House. Not quite in line of sight from the barn, but only a matter of a couple of miles from Clifford Castle, and just inside the Paris border, is Hay Castle. Seriously damaged by fires, it has since 2011 been owned by the Hay Castle Trust, who plan to renovate it as an arts and education centre. This is a medieval fortification and 17th century mansion house, but was also constructed in consequence of the Norman invasion of Wales. Castles are well represented in this part of the world, and one particular website lists over 400 known examples around the Principality and the Marches. Many were built either to help contain local volatility or repair threats emanating from further afield. Some were destined to be associated with events of great moment. One particular name frequently associated in such struggles is that of Owen Glendower of circa 1349 to 1416. Described by Shakespeare in Henry IV Part I as not in the role of common men, he was a virulent proponent of Welsh nationalism who opposed the occupying English in the early 15th century. His family was taken prisoner in 1408 when the castles at Aberystwyth and Harlech fell to the king's forces. Castles were often modified or otherwise used over the centuries for other purposes, notably during the Civil War. However, as with Clifford and Hay, the latter suffering damage at the hands of Glendower's forces in 1400 and also featuring in the Wars of the Roses, a goodly proportion of them have some connection with the events of 1066. The Black Country's own Dudley Castle originally started life as a wooden motton bailey that was built soon after the Norman Conquest. In the 12th century it was rebuilt in stone but demolished on the orders of King Henry II and rebuilt again sometime from the second half of the 13th century before John Dudley, 1st Duke of Northumberland, constructed the range of buildings within the fortifications that we see today. I have mused elsewhere on the Battle of Hastings and on two of its greatest postscripts, namely the Bayou Tapestry and the Domesday Book, both of which were a direct legacy of the battle. So, no surprise that my attention was drawn to the recent news of proposals to transfer the tapestry on loan from its present home in the city of the same name in northern France.
The Bayou Tapestry is thought to date from a few years after the battle that it depicts. Almost 230 feet long and just shy of two feet tall, it comprises some 50 scenes leading up to and culminating in the Battle of Hastings and is more accurately fashioned in an embroidery technique. Uh, this has exercised some scholars in recent years to adopt the term Bayo embroidery, perhaps more technically accurate, but somehow lacking the romanticism. Whatever your choice of nomenclature, it is a masterpiece. And in her 2005 book, La Tapisserie de Bayeux, medievalist expert Sylvette Lemagnon describes it as one of the supreme achievements of the Norman Romanesque. Its survival of nine centuries is little short of miraculous. Its exceptional length, the harmony and freshness of its colour, its exquisite workmanship and the genius of its guiding spirit combine to make it endlessly fascinating. A figure on the tapestry that appears to depict a soldier with an arrow in his eye reinforces the popular fable of King Harold's demise. It is in reality more likely he was hacked to death, but the arrow in the eye legend persists. The prospect of the tapestry being brought to England, a mammoth task if only in view of its sheer bulk and venerability, sometime around 2020, represents a unique opportunity to appreciate this awesome record of a most turbulent period in our history. Yet it is not necessary to wait until 2020 to get a flavour of the tapestry without leaving our shores, for we already have one of our own. And, what is more, it enjoys connections with Staffordshire and the Black Country. The British Bayeux Tapestry was the brainchild of Lady Elizabeth Wardle, a skilled embroiderer. Elizabeth was born in Staffordshire and educated in Stone, Alton and Codsall. Stone was home to some excellent needleworkers and she may have learned her embroidery skills there. She married Thomas Wardle, a silk industrialist, in 1857 at St Edward's Parish Church in Leek and bore him 14 children, although only nine survived childhood. By the time she and Thomas founded the Leek School of Embroidery and the Embroidery Society, Around the turn of the 1880s, she had already earned a reputation as a fine needlewoman. Multi-talented and philanthropic, she supported various charities and in 1891 even wrote a cookery book. She was especially skilled in the embroidery of figures and, following a visit to France to see the Bayeux Tapestry in 1885, it was her idea to make an accurate replica, as she put it, so that England should have a copy of its own. 35 needleworkers from Staffordshire and elsewhere outside the region worked under Elizabeth for over a year and the completed tapestry was exhibited in Leek before then being taken on tour around Britain and Europe. In 1895 it was on show in Reading when a former mayor purchased it and presented it as a gift to the people for display in Reading Museum and Art Gallery. In 1993, a purpose-built gallery at the museum was opened where the entire tapestry can now be seen. It is indeed accurate. That is, to a point. Uh, perhaps in deference to Victorian reserve, certain sensitive areas of the male form visible in the original are discreetly obscured in the replica. As for the Black Country connection, it was Thomas Wardle's collaboration with one of the giants of the 19th century arts and craft movement that encouraged Elizabeth to undertake the Bayeux Tapestry project. His name was William Morris. William Morris, 1834 to 1896, 
was variously a textile designer, poet, novelist, translator and social activist. He was a major contributor to the revival of traditional methods of production and played a significant role in propagating socialism in Britain. Elizabeth Wardle's brother George, who died in 1910, was the manager of William Morris's company for 20 years. Morris's mastery of wallpapers and fabrics can still be seen at the Wolverhampton home of the Mander family, prominent in the area's business and public life for over two centuries. Given to the care of the National Trust in 1937, and now a tourism magnet for both enthusiasts of the arts and craft movement and aficionados of high design, the house is more usually known as Whittig Manor. Enjoy your black country, and do join me again soon for more tales from the barn.